Welcome to Jolty, a podcast to help you lift your perspective above this jolty moment and focus on the ultimate direction of our business and personal lives. Hi, I'm Maggie Wilkinson, CEO of Athena Global Advisors, and I'm excited to be here today with two praised and proven futurists and my friends, Faith Popcorn and Adam Hampt. In today's episode, we will dine on discussion related to one of our favorite topics, food. We're digging into the future of food, specifically how the COVID pandemic has changed our food journey and is accelerating the role of automation in the industry. And with that, let's jolt. Adam and Faith, over to you. Thanks, Maggie. Thanks, Maggie. That was great. So, Addie, what do you think about food, as she says? Food, what Mm. about it? As all people are talking about, either what they ate, what they're planning to have, or what they don't want to eat anymore because they're just fed up with it and exhausted by it. So I think as much as we talked about food before, I I just can't believe what a large part of the pandemic conversation it has become. Yeah, you know, um, I know this might be obvious, but the stress, you know, of COVID, the election, all you want to do is just like eat your heart out in a way. And I think everybody's had a nice COVID weight gain, but it doesn't matter because nobody's seeing you. So I do think it's important. And I think we're getting a little bit fussy about where we take out or where we get you know, home delivered from. I agree. And I think a lot of my friends are getting things now from restaurants that are a la minute, they're saying. So it comes and it's almost prepared, but you've got to do two or three steps to finish it off so that it doesn't taste like something in a to-go container, but it's more like a chef prepared meal. And I also think that we are super duper into comfort food. What about drinking? This is my favorite subject, no matter what we're talking about, but it seems to be all part of this eating thing. You want to be drinking different things. I'm buying, you know, kinds of alcohol, liquors, liqueurs. I'm thinking about eggnog this time of year and how many friends I've had in the morning on the weekend tell me, oh, I just put brandy in my eggnog. Okay. So where is he? There he is. Chris, hi. It's nice to meet you. Hi. My pleasure. I've been following the spoon for a long time, so I'm glad to meet you. I think you do great work. Oh, thank you very much. It's nice to meet you as well. Chris, why don't you introduce yourself? Okay, well, my name is Chris Albrecht. I am the editor-in-chief of The Spoon. Uh, You can find us at thespoon.tech. And we're an online news publication that covers the convergence of food and technology. So what we're really interested in is how innovation is shaping the future of the meal journey, basically from the farm to your plate. So how has COVID impacted food, fancy food, home food, comfort food? Let's look at it in two ways. One is just sort of, it's shifted a lot of things. It's destroyed a lot of things, and then it's accelerated a lot of things. So one of the things it's done as we've gone through dining room closures and lockdowns and quarantines, it's decimated the restaurant industry, which is horrible for a lot of reasons. But what that's doing is if restaurants want to stay alive, they're pushing their food towards off-premises eating. So that's either through delivery or takeout. So you've seen a rise in sort of delivery services and the sort of restructuring of restaurants to accommodate a lower uh, human-to-human contact. And then you see the rise, like DoorDash just went public and they, along with other third-party delivery services, really grew tremendously during this time uh, because people were staying at home and ordering more. And it was the one way you could actually kind of support your local restaurant. What are we going to do with the restaurant? I mean, is that going to become a what? 
Well, I think there's a couple of things, right? For better or worse, it's the large chains that are more suited to, that are more able to withstand sort of the pressures that are going on. And so you see them adapting through these drive-through changes and re-architecting their spaces and adding things like AI to the menu and different payment, contact-free payment options. Then you have the rise of the delivery services and then the services that there's a whole host of software companies that have arisen that allow smaller restaurants to transition to digital ordering, Yeah, you know? Like those ghost kitchens, can you explain that? So a ghost kitchen can be like a big facility. And what they do is build big commercial kitchens and then rent out the space to restaurants who can open up a new concept that is delivery only. So it's, they just have the kitchen space. They don't have anything else. They don't have any other overhead. The tipping will take care of all of the infrastructure. So they have the staff to expedite food. And they have sort of the basic stuff that you need there and you can bring in specialty equipment. But yeah. we're seeing a lot of this. Euromonitor predicted that the ghost kitchen space is going to be worth uh, $1 trillion by 2030. Ghost kitchens started before the pandemic, driven to a large extent by the impossibility of small independent restaurants paying rents in large cities. So I think the pandemic is accelerating it. Do you think though that what you talked about before, Chris, which is this massive infrastructure investment in contactless and all the rest of it, to me, it runs the risk of being an overcorrection because I can't imagine that within a year from now, there's not gonna be a huge demand to go back to the social experience of dining. And to your point about who's gonna survive, the small independent restaurants that we love are the ones that are going to be hollowed out. And there could be actually more demand for those restaurants than there is supply once things start to return to normal, let's say in a year, 14 months. Yeah, you know, there are big questions that hang over sort of what are the new behaviors going forward, right? So what is going to be people's appetite to eat out or go to movies or grocery shop? What are those, what trends, what new behaviors have we created over the past nine months will remain going forward. Like there are vaccines on the horizon, right? It'll still be a few months until those are all distributed and there are a lot of things still left out with that. But the, the answer is, I don't know. And there is a certain amount of overcorrection, I think, but that's probably because people just don't know. Right. I think that you're gonna see that, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about the restaurant experience where you're in a restaurant opening your mouth and talking and laughing in a very small space. <laughs> but then if you think about sort of the idea of contactless payments applied elsewhere, what we're seeing a lot of also in other categories like convenience stores and at the very beginning of like grocery stores is the idea of cashierless checkout. Amazon Go, for example. Yeah, Amazon Go, Caper. I just wrote about a company called Zippin, uh, partnered with Fujitsu. And then iFi is another one. You know, I interviewed the CEO of Zippin a few weeks ago and they converted a convenience store inside Mile High Stadium in Denver at the end of September. And what they found is that not only does the cashierless experience reduce one human to human vector of transmission, right? Like you're not handing things back and forth with a cashier, but you're also, people are spending less time inside the store. So you have fewer people congregating at one, any given time inside a store. And as those technologies come online, we'll have to see how well those are adopted, but that's another form of contactless that I think is interesting to watch. Yeah, you know, people love to go out some, you know, when they can go to a restaurant where food gets delivered to your table, just like it's to your home. So one person could be eating, you know, from this restaurant and one person can be eating from that. Well, that's almost the beauty of a virtual kitchen hall, which mm -hmm. you see kind of popping up elsewhere, right? Like you could have 
one point of entry right. and then you could order for everybody because it's coming from the same place, right? And yeah. then the software can coordinate all of those meal productions so that they can time it correctly so that this is coming at the same time. And then there's just one driver who's picking it all up at once. You know, it's packaged up, run to the front it's, and it's, it's run to you. I think the thing to think about is the reverse, which is how are restaurants adapting to create food that travels well for delivery? One of the things that Faith and I predicted in our book, which is now almost two decades old, believe it or not, was that there would be food delivery that did final prep in the truck. One of the things that I'm following that sort of dovetails with this a little bit is the rise of automated vending machines. The automat returns. I've always been crazy about this idea. Describe it though. Okay, the automat is actually a really old concept and it goes back towards the beginning of the century to the 1900s. Started in Germany. Yeah, and then, you know, what it is, is is basically if you think about a series of cubbies, somebody would prepare your meal and then it would appear in a cubby and you would grab it out of the cubby or, you know, there were meals already prepared in a cubby, right? Yeah. You come across them at like old diners, whether it's a rotating thing with the slice of pie in it. Um, My cafeteria in middle school had this. They okay. were for- forward thinking at that cafeteria. Yeah. Its goal is to have zero human interaction. And part of that is through the cubby system. I order my meal. I can order my meal with my phone. Somebody or a robot prepares it. It pops up in a cubby. I unlock it with my phone and I grab it and I and I go away. So Chris, could I get three-star meals that way? So here's the thing. Just think of the concept of cubbies in general, right? And as a, as a way of storing food. Because one, you could do that on-site at a restaurant. And then there's one step further, a mobile automat. The idea being is that it parks in a particular area and it has just a bunch of cubbies. You go and you unlock it and you grab your food. The idea of the changing restaurant experience and sort of reducing the amount of human to human contact. What it does also is that it will take a premium off freshness and will push us towards dishes that stand up better cubbyized, right? It'll tend to commoditize food. Uh, I might push back on you a little bit about that. There are companies out there like Bite Technologies and even companies like Fresh Bowl or Farmer's Fridge or even Chowbotics, right? Chowbotics makes a salad making robot called Sally and it can make yogurt bowls or fresh salads. And its whole thing is that it, you know, it has 22 separate compartments and you can store all your fresh vegetables in there. So you could put this grocery stores are starting to use them because they can't have salad bars anymore. Right. Right. So you have this vending machine that can have a customizable menu and you go through and you can get your fresh salad right there. And using, you know, for something like Bite, one of the things that the smart fridge does is has a really good software system associated with it. Right. So not only does it know what food you have in there, but it'll go like, oh, hey, this sandwich has been in here for 48 hours. I'm going to dynamically change the price of it so that it's a third off, right? Or, you know, two thirds off or whatever. So they're able to manage their inventory better, have more insight into their inventory, and then able to dynamically change that yeah, price. I agree. No, I didn't mean commoditize to say that it will mean the products are less fresh. I meant it to say that the, at the high end or even the high end of the middle, the notion of a chef-driven restaurant. Yeah. With something that is composed and comes out of the kitchen in a very specific and purposeful way, that suffers with robotic technology. Adam, I I think part of what you're talking about is the art that takes place in a restaurant kitchen that's run by a chef. And the 17.4 seconds that it takes to go from the sous chef to the table. Now you have to wait for it, as you said, Faith, but then there's a benefit, which is that the immediacy of that experience is different. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but they're different. 
you know, that's a really interesting point and question, which is how will the restaurant experiences change, right? You'll have your high-end experiences, which will have the art. Yes. And then you'll have maybe a mid-tier where you can take your kids and not worry about them jamming chicken tenders into the, into the, <laughs> into the, into the corners of the booth. But then you'll also have like experiences that are just meant for quick grab and go. And you'll see, you know, there are robot cooks that are coming online, right? Operating fry stations. And they're just meant to be more volume and yes. get things done quickly. Faith, I have a question for you, actually, as you famously came up with the cocooning concept. And how does all of this play into that prediction you made, uh, you know, a a long time ago? I mean, totally. I mean, cocooning's always been there. People looking for like moving cocoon was a minivan, you know, looking for sheltered, safe places. But certainly COVID impacted this. And I think people are sucked in home, wanting learning in home, telemedicine, security, everything. When you have a neighborhood restaurant and you go there at the end of the day and you know everybody, it it has cocoon-like qualities. Yeah. If I'm understanding your definition correctly, if you have an environment and if you can limit that, like, well, I'm a club and I know who's a member here, then you sort of in your mind are like, oh, okay, that's one less thing I have to think about. I can go to this club and I know the people that are going to be there. Uh, and that might be more reassuring. I think there are quite a few little enclaves where people go. And I'm just wondering if you'd pay ahead a year. I mean, you know, talk about sustainability and supporting these restaurants, whether people would buy in to something to support them. I, I just can't see the big, ex- can, I just, I don't know what you think about this, Chris, but like you look at a menu and it's like $58 for a main course. I mean, even if you have the money, I don't think after this, you're going to want to spend $58. Look, I think that there was an exaggeration to the food culture before and competitive fooding and all of that was ridiculous to some degree. And I do think that there are some people who will reconsider that there are a lot of people, us ourselves included, you know, who eat out a lot. So I think that's going to scale back, but I don't think the high end will change, but I think the frequency will change. I don't think younger people want that kind of dining and sit there and pay so much money. It's like, it's almost like rent. But they were doing it before the pandemic, right? You could not get in. I could name, you know, 50 of them. You're talking, Faith, are you talking about sort of what I would call a production meal where it's almost on the set of a play and it's a real production, the whole whole meal. I think that the trend was going the other way anyway, and young people don't want it. But fine dining, chef-driven, really purposeful, farm-to-table, sustainable, really, really thoughtful, not overly composed. That's not going away, I don't think. Chris, convince me that I can be just as satisfied by a meal that a robot has made for me as I can by a Michelin star chef. In terms of robotics, there's a couple of ideas behind it. One is just if you want an, instead of thinking of them as a robot sometimes, maybe think of them as a machine, right? So what is a machine good at doing? It's good at cranking out things at the same pace, you know, at a high volume consistently over a period of time, right? So that's where something like Picnic's pizza assembly robot comes in. It will reduce your overages, your product overages, right? You'll be able to put the same amount of food, same amount of cheese, same amount of sauce, same amount of pepperoni on each and every pizza with having, so there's less waste. And they can crank out hundreds of pizzas an hour. But then if you want to make it more theatrical, like you have an articulating arm, which is something like the Glacier and Fire, I think in Iceland does, where it's a robot bar, where kind of the allure is like, hey, we're putting the robot on display and you can watch it dance around and it might do some kind of choreographed moves. You know, you'll go once and you'll be like, oh, that's really neat. And then you'll quickly be like, it's it's fine. It's a robot in the background. Again, I think it's the, the kind of the theme 
you know, one of the things we're touching on here throughout this conversation is just that there are, you're going to have some experiences, you're going to have your high end experiences, you're going to have sort of your mid range, you know, and it all depends on what you want and you'll be able yeah, to find it. Sure. You know, there's a restaurant near Faith called Danielle, which is a fancy four star restaurant, and they have something called the Skybox. You go through the kitchen and you sit above the kitchen, and what you see is robotic precision going on. It's people behaving robotically. That is what a well-oiled, beautifully run, disciplined kitchen is like. So what's wrong with robots doing it if you want to train your people to act like robots? I'll blow your mind here. What if you use VR to train robots to act like a chef? Take a famous chef, right? And you use VR, you track their motions. This is how they cut. This is how long they do something. This is how they hold the pan. You could have a robot emulate all of those yeah, things right. with enough training. And I'm not saying that's going to replace it. Like, obviously, there's an art to things. There's certain intangibles to things. But it's just the idea that, you know, there are, it's, we need to open up to a lot of different possibilities. So as we get more used to robotic and automated interactions across our lives, whether it's chatbots or AI and other places, then it'll become normalized. It won't just be what's going to happen at the bar. It's going to be the intrusion and the integration of robotic servants across all of our experiences. And that's just inevitable. Yeah, there's a there's an old saw that like, well, how do you define a robot, right? Is it a is a dishwasher a robot? It is an automated process that is a unitasking device that you push a button and it does all of the work for you. I don't think we need to get that far into navel gazing in terms of what we want to call a robot and what we don't. Right. But the idea of automation is something, there are a lot of things that go along with it. One, it'll provide, it should open up more equity to people because you'll be able to have delivery robots that go all night and they'll be cheaper and they'll be able to run. They'll be able to deliver food to different people. But then you have to think like, okay, well, what are the happens with the jobs then that are lost from those? These are all things that, that really need a lot of discussion, both governmentally and on the industry sectors to kind of figure out how automation will change and what we can do to make sure that it is as smooth and equitable a transition as possible. Yeah. Well, I, I just think it's, you're fascinating. So oh, thank you. if you just had a dollar, where would you put it? What part of tech? How would you what invest part? it? Oh, that is a really good question. If I had $3, where would you <laughs> If I had $3. So uh, I will tell you this. So one thing, cell cultured meat is coming off of what has been a pretty big week. Uh, Singapore just allowed the first sale of cultured meat from Eat Just. It's a cultured chicken product. For people listening, this is meat that's grown in a lab. They cultivate the cells in a medium and grow them. There are people that are doing really interesting things, creating cell-based gelatin and collagen, which is really interesting. Um, Why is that interesting? Now, if you think about gelatin, it's you know bones and hooves that are boiled yeah, down, yeah. right? Yeah. And if you can create uh, uh, sort of a, a, a less uh, gruesome sort of gelatin. Yeah. Uh, and you can also, you can make it, you can adapt it. So you can say, we want it to have this kind of characteristic as opposed to this kind of characteristic. Right. So just think about the problems with fish. Yeah. And the amount of mercury and plastics that are in fish. You could actually use cell-based culture to create tuna, swordfish, genetically identical to the fish that would come from the ocean. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's slaughter free. Also, I'd look at uh, things that are happening in AI and computational biology. 
food is becoming more like software. Beyond Meat is going to be putting its out its third version of its burger. That doesn't happen with traditional cow meat, right? Like you can't tweak it or improve it. But if you can improve not only the way gelatin is made or the way cheese is made, right? By moving more towards more sustainable resources, but then you're also able to tweak it so that you can ramp up certain aspects of it and play down others. Well, that's super interesting. So I'd put my $2 there. Chris, quickly, you mentioned 3D printing food. Yeah. Can you talk about that just a little bit? It's something that's fascinated me. It is crazy what's happening across the food tech spectrum. There's a company called Savor Eats that 3D prints and cooks the meat at the same time. So as it's layering in, that's a plant-based steak that they're creating, Mm -hmm. but as it's layering in, it's being cooked. That allows you to, I think sort of you get to the idea of replicating the structure and texture of the meat that you're looking for, the ability to create scaffoldings that you can hang cell cultured meat on. It's very early on. That's just for the cell-based meat. You're fascinating and you're fabulous. I had a really fun time. Thank you. Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. He is so genuine. I just loved him. He's really smart and he's sitting at the cusp of the convergence of food and technology. And that involves, like he said, computational biology, all these disciplines coming together. So you know you're really on the cusp of something new when it's not just one discipline, but many disciplines coming together at the same yeah. time. And his brain is processing all of that. And that's really exciting. I was fascinated that he described what's happening more like software development and that their iterations. I kept thinking of Windows 10 and thinking, yeah, this will be burger four, burger five. Yeah, it's true. He's right. I mean, food is food is biology and biology is chemistry and chemistry is, is all code, right? It's all reduced down to the atomic level. That's how you're able to create tuna in a lab or you can extract CBD and make it in a lab too, or THC for that matter. So lab grown is the future. Will people accept it? I think they will. I think they will. 